Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 39, Homer's Iliad, book 12, part 2. Last time we talked about the first 330 lines or so, and we ended with Sarpedon talking to Glaucus about the heroic code and how he and Glaucus sit at the best part, or the finest, they sit in the finest, most honored chairs at the Lycaean table. They receive the best foods, and they receive the finest wines. And why is that? Well, because they are the finest men, and so they require, or rather are given the finest things as representative of their value to the people with whom they exist and whom they rule. And so they are called upon now to show their great value and valor in battle. And so we enter back in to Homer's Iliad. Menestheus shivers as Sarpedon and Glaucus and the Lycians descend upon his position. He immediately summons to him his herald, his runner Thootes, to summon the Iontes and Teucris to his position. Recall that Teucris is the half-brother to Aias the Greater and is an archer of some talent, who even got a shot off on Hector. Um, and also Aias the Lesser is an archer of some talent as well, and that Aias the Greater currently is the most nightmarish force on the battlefield. He is the Achilles as far as we are concerned. He is the standout success. And so if he is summoned to the position uh, of least hope right now, where the Lycians are likened to a darkening storm cloud, which is bringing the thunder, as it were, well, if the Achaeans are going to stand any chance, it is going to be if Ias the Greater goes to help uh, with his brother and potentially another person, he, he will actually go to help with uh, uh, his brother Teucris and Pandion, and he will be he will order Ias the Lesser to maintain his position and to continue fighting and holding the position that they were fighting at um, as he retreats back to the Achaean Wall. And so the the name of the herald who is sent to Ias the Greater um, to summon him. By Menestheus is named Thootes, and this is a bit of interesting etymologizing by Homer because Thootes, the word comes from the, the Greek word Thoos, which means quick or nimble or speedy or fast. Um, and something interesting about him being named fast is that, of course, the word for their for God is Theos, from which we get theology and Theomachy later in the Iliad, the Battle of the Gods or War of the Gods. And something interesting about the gods, and this is explicitly mentioned of the speed of Hera, is that the gods move as fast as thought. And in fact, uh, an old story is that if a god betrays his or her oath on the river Styx, he or she has to stay completely immobilized for an entire year. Which you might imagine, if something moves as fast as thought, to be completely immobilized would be utter hell to them. And in fact, that's how Dante represents Satan, in the deepest circles of his hell as completely immobilized. Which reminds one, of course, of Achilles right now, who is enjoying his valor and loneliness, as Nestor described him, who denies his gifts to all and lets his friends fight in his place as he denies either of his destinies to live a long life and uh, without fame or to live a short life with fame, he is currently living a sort of limbic non-life. And so the point is, is that Thoos, meaning speedy, 
seems to be connected to Theos in terms of speedy, in terms, and speed seems to be a quality of exceptional value. Um, not only in terms of speed of feet, which is, of course, how Achilleus is described, swift-footed Achilleus, but also in terms of thought. And, in fact, current measures of IQ have shown, and particularly the work of Arthur Jensen in Clocking the Mind, that even simple reaction time is indicative of a G-factor, which is correlated with IQ or, or an, a standardized measure of intelligence. Um, that is rooted in 80 years of empirical research. And so it's almost as if the idea that speed is divine and that what's most divine is speedy thought because speedy thought adapts one to situations quickly enough to win in conflicts and to generate and improve societies in radically efficient ways. It's just very interesting to make that sort of connection. And just um, about the etymologizing, just as a further connection, there will be a character in the Odyssey, of the Phaeacian king Alcanoas. He, has a, he had a father named Nausithoas who, who brought his, his people away from the land of the Cyclopes where the Phaeacians had once been giants, but it seems that they gave up their giant size for their speedy minds, and with their speedy minds they generated ships, which enabled them to sail away from the Cyclopes to gain perspective, as it were. <clears throat> and something about their ships is they're described in precisely the same way that the speed of the gods is, as is fast as thought. And ultimately it will be a Phaeacian ship that returns Odysseus to his home through the southern port of the gods, almost as if and this is after he's told them his story. And they do this at great risk to themselves, knowing that there's a prophecy that they may well be destroyed for helping him. Just as when he blinded Polyphemus, even though Polyphemus knew that there would be a man named Odysseus who blinded him, he will not even know after he's blinded that Odysseus had blinded him. Showing that the Phaeacians develop and know the value of speed and that which is divine precisely because of their thoughts and their how much they value thought, whereas the Cyclopes, barbaric in size, without laws, <clears throat> and never developing their inventive capacities, are ultimately limited by their limited perspective. And so, another thing one might notice about the Achaeans and the advantage they will have over the Trojans is the speed with which they generate new strategies and how they adapt to the situation even when difficulties arise. And so Thootes is a very effective symbol for how the Achaeans work even under poor circumstance. So Thootes reach, reaches Aias the Greater. Aias the Greater agrees to come. He brings Teucris and another man, Pandion, but he orders Aias the Lesser to maintain his position. So the Lycaeans assault the Achaean wall like a darkening storm wind, and Aias kills first. He crushes the inner bones of the head of Iphicles with a mighty hurl of a stone. Not two men as men are these days could even pick up, and we're going to have two of those quotes in this lecture. Hector will pick up a stone that not two men as men are these days could pick up, um, and he will use that to smash the Achaean wall. 
in a very particular spot. And um, that, similar to what Nestor often uses as a rhetorical device, is sort of um, a, a call to past glory in the present, one might say. It has an exhortative function. When we hear that Hector picks up a stone that not two men of these days could pick up, we're supposed to think those men are stronger than the men of the days we live in. And so we're so weak that we should really work on getting stronger. And that's, that's the idea behind why <clears throat> these heroes pick up things or they pick up obstacles, they pick up burdens, they, they take on tasks that are far beyond a normal man's strength. They take on heroic level tasks. And so it's exhortative to us as people to do the same. And so Aias crushes in the brains of another man. <laughs> Teucris then wounds Glaucus. And an interesting thing about this is that you may be wondering, um, is one of them of lower rank than the other? And thus, does that mean that a minor character will have injured a major character and the minor character is now going to die? And no, that principle does not here apply. Even though Teucris and Glaucus are both sort of subordinate characters, Teucris subordinate to Aias the Greater, and um, uh, Glaucus, subordinate to Sarpedon. Um, they are of equivalent rank in the story or equivalent importance. And so even though Glaucus is wounded by Teucris, Teucris will not suffer uh, death because of this. And in fact, Glaucus slinks off because of this. And Sarpedon, Sarpedon notices, and this causes him some consternation. Um, but... Because of this, Sarpedon reintegrates that energy, and he stabs Alcmaeon, and then he whips out a piece of the wall. And here, here's a quote from lines 397 to 399. And Sarpedon, grabbing in both ponderous hands the battlements, pulled, and the whole thing came away in his hands. And the rampart was stripped defenseless above. He had opened a pathway for many, and he had opened a pathway for many. As, um, I, I sometimes read this line metaphorically too, perhaps romantically. And I see that I see that as a metaphor for the example his character provides as well. Saying going out onto the battlefield and saying that he should earn his meat and earn his spot at the table just like any other man should. And that he should try and win some valor for himself, which is very much a valorous or valiant position. A knightly position to take, way to see things. And uh but also his recognition of the, possibil the possibility of death and knowing that death would be preferable to a life of dishonor for him. And he, he says that, he could, that if he gets not valor on the battlefield, perhaps he will give valor to another. And so no matter what, he has chosen how he will live and die in a valiant way. And so... The fact that he had opened a pathway for many, well, we can only hope. But then I, I suppose we can also pursue and aim for. And what better, really? So, Tugris even hits Sarpedon's shield belt. So Tugris is really showing some prowess out on the battlefield right now. But the problem is, is that Sarpedon, well, there are plans for him later. Zeus has a 
Zeus has seen what fate has decreed, knows that Troy must fall, and unfortunately his son Sarpedon is going to be part of a causal chain which is going to bring about the destruction of Troy. And so Sarpedon cannot die right now. And so even though Teucris gets off a shot at him, it hits the belt that attaches Hector's, or excuse me, uh, it hits the belt of Sarpedon's, not Hector's, excuse me for saying that, Sarpedon's shield and then it says zeus would not allow it to penetrate and uh would not allow tucris to strip away the life of his son and then even Ius the greater tries to stab him with his spear but his spear is bent back by sarpedon's shield and so sarpedon is really killing it right now. I don't know that I would technically call this an Aristea for him. I don't know if he gets enough kills for that, but in terms of actu actual success, he's he's ripped a small hole in the wall. He's managed to um, sort of avenge and effectively deal with his lieutenant being injured and leaving the battlefield and keep it together and in fact get stronger when that happens. And he's now survived actual blows from the two major Achaeans who were summoned to uh who were summoned to uh deal with him well that's all very great and what but what is perhaps more important in this situation is realizing we're just talking about sarpedon who are we not talking about that's right hector if Ias the greater and teucris are diverted to dealing with sarpedon and hector is currently being helped by zeus then Hector is worse than Sarpedon, and the Achaeans' best fighters are dealing with Sarpedon, which means that Hector is essentially undefended. And well, you don't leave Hector undefended when he's already gone against the advice of his wise counselor, Pulidamus, and has decided to try and burn these ships, even though a bird sign said that that will cause pain, but will not kill them, recall the bird sign, with the red viper that's dropped by the eagle because it still had fighting spirit and then slithers off and those and the the eagle are the trojans and the snake are the achaeans and though they might get injured by this and it may cause them pain it will not douse but will rather rouse their fighting spirit and so sarpedon is killing it right now and he calls out to his men and reproaches them and says, as great as I am doing right now, it'll be a hard thing for me to win this entire war by myself. And his reproach, uh, he reproaches his men to greater valor. And well, they, they fight all the harder because of that, because of the great respect they have for their leader. He's, he's very much different from the, the Agamemnon that we saw earlier on, who, who did not affect the spirit of his people, though he's been doing better lately, we've noticed he's been improving. And so then a mighty stalemate occurs between the Lycaeans and the Argives guarding the walls. And the fight is compared in a rather colorful uh, simile to a poor widow weighing wool in her scales and just sort of a pathetic existence. And so um, perhaps stalemate and war um, during the clash of Perhaps, hmm, I understand. Homer may here be 
attempting to show how futile war feels in the moments when a stalemate is occurring and nobody seems to be making ground in the same way that life might feel futile as a poor widow weighing wool, which though of high value seems to have no weight at all. And so everything seems unimportant and gray and terrible um, in those moments. And I guess that's why nobody ever likes a tie. <laughs> well, that doesn't last. Moments like those don't last because Zeus then gives greater glory to Hector. And so Hector reaches for glory. Hector snatches up a stone, the sort of stone that two men could hardly hoist if they tried, as men are these days, between lines 445 and 450. And notice that Zeus makes it easy for him in line 450. And so what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that Hector's current power comes from the favor of Zeus, not simply from himself. This is, and the favor of Zeus currently comes from the favor of Achilleus. So Hector is receiving his current strength from the favor of Achilleus, obliquely. And what does that mean? Well, that means if he does anything that angers Achilleus more than Achilleus is currently angry at Agamemnon, which he will, then he'll find out just how temporary his current rise to glory has been and just how quickly his luck will run out. And he, he's sort of like Jesus on the cross screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his moment when he faces death against Achilleus, he too, he too will feel abject terror and will flee for his life. <clears throat> And so, Hector snatches up a stone, hurls the stone at double doors, secured by a single pinpoint. And a single pinpoint is always interesting to me when I hear that. I don't know much about masonry or door craft, as it were, but that could either mean one of two things, I think. Indication of shoddy construction due to the fact that this, uh, this gate and wall was hastily built indicated by the fact that the gods hate it because it was not properly, the proper sacrifice was not made to them because it was not honestly made, nor was it made um, in proper time with proper skill and um, appl application, yeah, application of skill to it. So, or it could indicate that Hector's current preeminent skill with the help of Zeus helps him just to notice the weak points of all things and to effectively strike against them in the way that Zeus can effectively pinpoint and strike against a foe with pinpoint accuracy with his lightning bolts from on high. And so we have a moment like from The Shining when Jack Nicholson uses an axe to open up a hole in the bathroom door where his wife and son are hiding behind and stare, sticks his face in, eyes all crazy looking, 
and says, in a moment that is captured in inf the infinite time of cinema history, here's Johnny. Well, I find some similarities between that and this description of Hector. Then glorious Hector burst in with dark face like sudden night. But he shone with the ghastly flitter of bronze that girded his skin and carried two spears in his hands. No one could have stood up against him and stopped him except the gods when he burst in the gates. And recall that the gods, they're banned. So nobody will be stopping him. And his eyes flashed fire. That's something we'll see with Achilleus later. Whirling. Remember, he's crazy. He's unrestrained. It's not due to discipline or skill, but the favor of Zeus that he's so successful right now. He called out to cross the battle to the Trojans to climb over the wall, and they obeyed his urgency. Immediately, some swarmed over the walls or the wall, while others swept in through the rock gateways, and the Danaeans scattered in terror among their hollow ships, and clamor incessant rose up. Book 12, lines 462 to 471. And so the Achaean wall has been breached by Hector with the support of Sarpedon. And now we'll have to see whether the prophecy of Pulidamus was correct. Will the Achaeans, without the help of Achilles, be capable of withstanding the Trojan onslaught? Will they push the Trojans back? Will the first Achaean ship burn? Will all the Achaean ships burn? Will the injured Achaeans return to the fight? What can they do? But how necessary is an Odysseus now, a Diomedes, a Machaon, or an Agamemnon? We'll have to find out in our next lecture on Book 13. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 39 on Homer's Iliad, book 12, part 2. Thank you for continuing, for continuing to listen, share, like, and call in. Thank you. Have a great day.